0: Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Boxing history, my friends, and it's anniversary time. So I'm here with my buddy Eris Pina, copy box operator and just fight history fanatic like myself. Eris, what the hell is up, bro? How
1: are you? How's everything, my friend?
0: Doing good, dude. I mean, 25 years. I literally was just saying before we went on and started recording. Oh my god like I, I just I didn't even I re, I realized it was a long time ago I know what year it was I just I guess I didn't really put a number to how long ago it was and holy shit 25 years ago so it it yesterday was the anniversary let's see when I actually get this published but <laughs> the 19th of December in 1997 Nasim Hamed versus Kevin Kelly dude I mean re, we're revisiting retelling reliving Yowzas.
1: Yeah. Dude, I mean think about that like you said 1997 if you think about it quickly you're, not, you're like oh it wasn't that long ago and then you realize that was 25 fucking years ago that was a long time ago it was an entirely <laughs> different world. Uh what was I doing in 1997? I was either in December of that year. I was in huh, either 6th or 7th grade. I don't even remember.
0: <laughs> Gosh, dude, I'm I mean I don't know where I I I have absolutely no idea. I was 15. I know mm-hmm. I didn't watch it live. I'm pretty sure I didn't watch it live, but I mean, I knew of Hamed. Everybody knew of Hamed, and I mean, that's, I think that's something to, uh, something that's easy to forget. I think for a lot of younger fans especially, and, and I think probably some fans who are our age or even older, it's easy to forget because, as we were also discussing before we were, before we were recording, Nassim Hamed, dude, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. absolute fucking cultural like in commercials etc i remember when he got the adidas deal and it was a massive dude they had like Absolutely. a i don't remember what it was they premiered the commercial on but it was like an adidas commercial premiere and she remember when they used to do that shit in the 90s too yeah, sure. you know they would premiere a fucking commercial what like it was, it was something Bowl.
1: to the effect of i remember it was like the prince is coming go you know, some guy yelling and he was talking just them. yeah
0: yeah, yeah, it was almost like they, they do, like, the Big E shit, like, on the... Yeah, but, I mean, uh, he was massive. Fucking massive. And so, I mean, you know, it's easy because when you bring up Muhammad now, literally every fucking person ever goes, Barrera, but Barrera. And it's like, Dude, you know, it he was more to nasim hamed's career than marco antonio barrera so i mean uh that's and this fight is a a big part of his career
1: totally so you know like you just kind of said man it's hard to it's hard to describe how much of a phenomenon hamed became in the late 90s i ended up watching this card live with my dad with my dad um it was on a friday night i was absolutely hyped the entire week for it and now that i remember i was actually in sixth grade um going into seventh but um I was beyond hyped for this card because not only did it feature high hot against one of my favorites at the time, Kevin Kelly, but the undercard was going to be Junior Jones and Kennedy McKinney. And both of those guys in the mix at that point, when Marco Antonio Brera had made quite a stir themselves. And just this obviously was just a card that was not to be missed. You know what I mean? And I remember specifically one of my friends, because he knew I was gullible, and we were at the Boys and Girls Club that day, and he told me that the card was canceled. I started believing him because he told me something about Kevin Kelly testing positive for he made up a drug, and I believed him. I was like, how do you know this? He was like, oh, no, I read it in the paper already. Uh-huh, it got canceled. And he was doing that to mess with me. And I was all freaked out, and I remember going home, and I'm, like, scrolling through and telling my dad. And my dad I was like, what are you talking about? Nothing's being canceled. I was like, yeah, it is. Chris told me. And he was like, you believe in your friends again, Aris? <laughs> I'm just like, and then obviously it wasn't. But, like, um, yeah, man, because when I say a phenomenon that Ahmed was, unless you are, you know, fully entrenched as a hardcore boxing fan, you didn't, you know, you weren't realizing what, what kind of impact he had in the in the late nineties. You know, it was it was more just like people were just fascinated by what 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 to uh, what was gonna happen. You know, to to surmise him a little bit, like when he first came on the scene in England, people were just hearing rumblings about it. Like you were reading about it in in um in magazines, like the local, like um remember the the weekly magazine that they used to do like the little newspaper magazine like british boxing weekly or whatever mm-hmm. like those type of things they were palman was always was already getting write-ups and those he was an amateur sensation and coming from the brendan ingle camp um he had a style that hadn't been seen since the days of a prime Harold graham and not only that unlike graham he was carrying one punch knockout power as a featherweight junior featherweight at this point he was even a featherweight
0: and so and i sorry, but important Fair. to note that also Harold Graham was also from the Brendan Engel camp. Yeah, that's so what I meant like, to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. There's that whole tie in, exactly. <clears throat> and um, so by the time Hamed started making inroads and like started being mentioned, like as, for instance, as a new face in Ring Magazine and just popping up in different blotters and stuff like that, you know, people were getting curious oh, who is this kid? Oh, he's knocking the hell out of people left and right in Europe and never going rounds and. You've seen photos of him with this unusual herky-jerky-looking style, but unless you were like a tape trader back then or something, there was nothing to be seen. Remember, this is the days before social media. There was no YouTube. There was no nothing. We were just kind of, you know, left out to dust with him. As I became a fan, I started reading about him, became more and more curious, hoping I was able to catch a glimpse of him one day. Because as I'm reading about him, he's knocking out this guy, that one. Finally, he's matched up with Steve Robinson. Who at the time was the WBO featherweight champion. You know, have we discussed on the show path before how Featherweight Champ, you know, how the WBO was randomly and whatever, how it was respected in America, yada yada yada. In Europe it always seemed to hold a certain place where it always like held a certain pedestal over there. Way before America really like took grasp of it, Europe already was like, you know, um acknowledging it more or less. You know what I mean? If the champion was a WBO champion, they definitely were more, you know, accommodating and commanding and yada 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 so steve robinson was a long time was a long time uh, featherweight champion came from humble beginnings a really good fighter and a respected fighter hamed took him apart just demolished him it wasn't even competitive in that fight and there's a famous photo that i saw in the boxing illustrated magazine that made me want to see hamed so badly fight and that was steve robinson on all fours with his head down after he got dropped and hamed standing over him and uh, with his mouth open like muhammad ali looking down and I was like, I have to see this guy one day, you know. So that's what the type of serve that Hamid was creating at this point in the in the mid to late nineties.
0: A lot of the fighters that he was defeating, like I mean, <clears throat> another thing about the WBO, especially then, mm-hmm. that it it's changed a little bit, but not that much. But apart from it being kind of known as something of a European or European centric or organization or whatever, um, which is weird, because I'm pretty sure even then it was based in based out of Venezuela. <laughs> I don't know. Or 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 actually, I'm sorry, it was what is it, Puerto Rico? Sorry, it's Puerto Rico, I think. OK, I don't know. In any case. It's not based out of Europe, to my knowledge. But in any case, uh, another thing is that they've always been very weird about whether or not they're going to enforce mandatories. They're super selective about it. Um, you know. Like, And for instance, one of the mandatories that had popped up for Nassim Hamed over the years was Juan Manuel Marquez. And that was a fight that had been talked about in the ring a number of different times and a few different issues and whatnot. Until finally it was just kind of accepted, or at least uh, the, the line was that like Hamed just didn't want to fight him or was avoiding him or something like that. And I mean, I guess, but it was also in part Marquez's fault because of you know, he was having uh, difficulty staying consistent, blah, blah blah.: Very, Very. But, Barry. but for, for whatever reason, Hamed seemed really loyal to this WBO belt. Um, I don't know if it was some sort of lineage he liked or something. I never, I never really understood it because he was taking on champions from other organizations and defeating them, but just not, just not hanging onto the belts, I guess. But, um, yeah, around that time he was defeating a string of opponents that most of them were not super well known in the U S partially because of the weight class. But some of them because they weren't American fighters. And so, you know, what happens when that happens when it comes to like American press and shit like that. And that means that that fighter ain't shit. You know, that means that they're beating a bunch of bullshit fighters or a bunch of bums (laughs) or something. That's always how it goes. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. in reality, a number of these fighters actually were very good. Uh, I mean, even Manuel Medina, I know that he was not. Like, you know, he, he was spotty himself, but he would give somebody, give just about any fighter a tough night on his best night. Um,
1: he gave Hamed hits
0: that night, he so, was a slippery bastard, and yeah. he and so Hamed fought some pretty good fighters, is the point. I mean, I know the it's it's easy to say otherwise, but he did.
1: But here's and here's the thing, Pat. So after he wins the title, Hamed now, or in 1995, he knocks out Steve Robinson, he makes one. Title defense first against a uh, no hope against Said Wall Lowell who um gets knocked out in less than a minute. And that was the, the beauty of Hamed that like if he could catch you early and flatten you, you would immediately. So after that, like I told you after reading about um, him beating Steve Robinson, I was drooling, literally salivating as a little kid, because this was me. I was in the boxing, I wasn't in the basketball, football, stuff like that. Like I followed boxing religiously and I wanted to see Hamed fight on television. And then randomly one day, and this is the beauty of kind of being a fan back in the day, sometimes you would get surprised without, real, without even knowing it, um, Hamed was going to make his U.S. debut. Not U.S. and, and the actual states, but U.S. television debut um, on Showtime against a fighter by the name of uh, Daniel Alisea, who was an undefeated prospect at the time. And I remember at that night, I was expecting to watch Terry Norris against Julio Cesar Vasquez, And like either that day or the day before, one of those guys pulled out for one other uh, one reason or another and hamed alisea ends up becoming the main event slot for that fight and i was like oh shit okay this is exciting i get to see hamed for the first time and i remember being fascinated excuse me by his entrance because it reminded me of like something you see in wwf back then or wcw whatever you know in the whole his whole demeanor like he's has people walking him down the ring like if you were the king of the ring back in the day for say for instance like king harley race or king macho macho king you know and you have the four people holding you up and he's there sitting there and doing this and all that and he's like stop he was like the prince wants to walk now and they let him down and he comes and he does the whole flip in the air and all that shit and then i see him fight and he's doing the same herky jerky style i'm seeing in photos now i'm actually watching it live and then he gets dropped because he's so off balance is so wonky Alisea catches him with a beautiful right hand, and Ahmed gets dropped. But then he comes right back and flattens Alisea. Like, and it wasn't like, you know, oh, hit him with a flurry, and the referee jumped in. No, he hit him so hard the poor dude bounced his head off like a basketball and just laid there stiffened and unconscious. And that's when I was hooked line and sinker. I was like, I gotta watch every fight I can of him, you know. And soon after that, luckily enough, um, Showtime again. They um, they aired the Manuel Medina fight, and Medina was another guy that. I've read about a lot in the magazines, but didn't really get a chance to see because he wasn't, you know, featured or televised when um I was in my infancy that often, right? So when he's fighting on Showtime, and I remember specifically because for whatever reason, he I think he had the same designed trunks that Hamed had really crazy frizzies and stuff like that. But like you said, Pat man, very wily veteran giving Hamed all kinds of tricks and slipping and sliding. Good, good tough fight till Hamed eventually broke through uh broke through and stopped him. But you just knew you were watching the guy that was on the rise if you didn't if he wasn't special to you yet, he was about to be and just someone that he was must see television,
0: yeah, <clears throat> it became clear, I think pretty quickly watching him that it was like it, he was all in one way or another, you know it was he was either gonna get knocked out in spectacular fashion or he was gonna <clears throat> contort. And mm-hmm. twist and leap and do all sorts of crazy shit to try to knock his opponents out, and he we've talked about the greatest punchers, and he was one of those punchers where it didn't really look like you didn't know where the power came from. you know he was kind of he was kind of lengthy, like he did have good pretty good reach, but it was he he didn't really use his reach like that though. Like you know, he wasn't like snapping punches. He wasn't
1: especially tall or anything. He had really yeah. thick, caps, like Pacquiao types.
0: Yeah, he was, and and he was mostly like leaping with his shit. Like he wasn't really like a you know precision puncher like that. You know, like a textbook puncher. And so, yeah, it it was it became clear that it was one way or another. You know, you were gonna get a show, and he became very quickly. Became I think even in the UK, but probably to a lesser extent. He was probably more beloved in the UK than anything. But the act in the U.S. was like people love to hate that shit in the U.S. Americans love to hate that kind of shit, you know, especially if it's somebody foreign. Yeah. Like they're just like, oh, no way, not here, you know. <laughs> they're crazy that's about all, that shit. And
1: that's what the U.S. fans are waiting for. Now we're starting to get a taste of him because we're starting to see him on U.S. television. He's being featured on Showtime. Um, this was during the time where Don King his strength and his strength and hold on Showtime is being broken a little bit because Frank Warren started getting his guys on you know random shows, hence why Hamed was featured on like that. And Hamed's last fight on Showtime was a dominant performance against Tom Johnson. Long time, very highly under uh, very underrated uh, featherweight champion. And it was a unification fight, like you said. Ahmed beat a lot of the other um, champions, but always held on to that WBO belt. You know, if he had, if he gave up the other one, whatever. And so Johnson, who was a little bit longer than tooth at this point, gave Ahmed some issues too. I mean, it was a it was a good fight, but Ahmed clearly was you know a step above until he eventually stopped him. But at that point, it was known at that it was at that point that everybody just kind of knew. All right, now the time was to make the move, and he's been featured on Showtime and American television, but. Now the time was to make the move to actual America and fight on HBO. Because I'm sure, as you can agree as well, even though Showtime, you know, was a prominent uh, broadcaster for boxing at that point, there was clearly still number two compared to HBO. And if you ask most fans back then, especially casual ones, who when they watch boxing, they would say, oh, yeah, I watch it on HBO, you know. So it was essential that if Ahmed was going to make an impact, he was going to have to switch networks and to <laughs> America.
0: No question. And also, on top of that, um, 1996 saw the first show of Boxing After Dark. Yes. And As we're so, about
1: to get you with the undercard now and talk how that all ties in.
0: <clears throat> so clearly, HBO was, well, and on top of that, HBO was affiliated with the other, I mean, Mike Tyson at this time was obviously very volatile and nobody knew what the fuck was happening with, with a, a lot of that stuff. Or at this point, he was probably just on his way to being uh, suspended or having his license suspended and shit like that. But he was the biggest money maker, And then also HBO had a number of these other fighters like Oscar De La Hoya, uh, mm-hmm. Felix Trinidad. I know that there was a lot in flux with that and shit like that, but he was primarily Showtime, at least for the time being. But HBO was building a momentum for sure. And, and this was another example of that embracing the lower weight classes and doing it in a way where like, Hey, you know, maybe we can make something out of this. Maybe we can match some mix and match some of these fighters up.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know,
0: you'll talk about that in a couple of minutes too, but you know, with these potential matchups down the road as well, with some of these, like, you know, 130 pound fighters that we got and 135 pound fighters that we got. So you know there was definitely some interesting programming that HBO was thinking about in their boxing uh, programming right around this time, and yeah, I think that Nasim Hamed was becoming like a business. You know, he was becoming uh, he was becoming more. He was like I said, he was a phenomena. He was more than just a fighter. And um, <clears throat> what's that that documentary they did for the Barrera fight? It's like. A little prince big fight or something like that i want to say
1: oh dude i am not gonna lie to you besides highlights i have not watched barrera hamed since it first happened nor have i watched any of the uh, anything else the only thing i've seen are just like where everybody repeats the same thing of Hamed getting his head knocked into the corner. <laughs> <laughs> i just i just never really thought about watching it again a lot of fights i just never thought of watching again that was just one of them for whatever reason
0: um well they they like a, a documentary crew I say it for a reason I swear a documentary crew was following uh Naseem Mohammed around yeah. for that fight and I know I'm skipping a lot of time here but the point is just that I think that documentary illustrated just how popular he'd become and just also how much like he'd kind of bought into his own hype and his own legend or whatever and this oh, yeah. was this was that legend building Or, you know, back in 1996, 97, Mm -hmm. was that was almost kind of like when you would hear Hamed in interviews or read Hamed in interviews. He talked a lot about like it was his destiny and his destiny was to like rule over the featherweight division. And then he was going to move up. And then he was going to move up to 130 pounds and rule over that division. And nobody was going to be able to stop him. Talked a lot about religion, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, 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 it sounded like he was making it come true. I mean, like it, it at this point it seemed like there was really no stopping him. It was it was actually pretty interesting too, because like I said, American fans were loving to hate on his ass, mm-hmm. and this this presented, uh, you know, against Kevin Kelly, Nasim Hamad had already fought four times in nineteen ninety seven, so he's closing out in December of nineteen ninety seven. He's closing out the year with a firefight against a dude. Yes. Go ahead.
1: I don't know, but I, I was going to say it's like you couldn't pick a better opponent for Ahmed's American debut at Madison square garden and on HBO. Like it, I get goosebumps thinking about it again. You know what I mean? Because like, it, it was just the perfect storm that you can think of Kevin Kelly. Um, as you just mentioned, Pat was just one of those guys that like when he first burst onto the scene, you know, former, <coughs> always a New York fighter through and through like a stellar amateur career that culminated, um, almost making the 88 Olympic team. And after, um, he fell through on that, he turns pro and becomes a local hero in the New York area. First off, you know, turning pro and then fighting multiple times in the felt forum, like a lot of, like a lot of the prospects in the New York area used to do all the time. Right. Cause that was just the place to fight at, you know, gaining experience and this is the late eighties. So people are still keeping a high work rate in terms of, like, activity out in the ring. Like, they're fighting, especially early in your career, it's not uncommon for you to be fighting seven, eight, nine times a year or something like that. Clearly, that does not happen now at all, but back in Kelly's prime in the late 80s, early 90s, this was a common thing. The only thing that was holding him back was his size, you know what I mean? Most guys, especially Americans, were not the size of Cat, you know, not featherweights. 126 pounds or 122 at junior featherweight, yada, yada, yada. And it's always been the sense that these guys have always been held back too. you know what I mean? (laughs) That, you know, on certain networks, everything, if you're going to, sometimes you'll see a junior, feather back then you'll see a junior featherweight title fight or another one like that, but it would always be buried on a pay-per-view card or anything. You didn't see anything clearly featured on HBO or on Showtime. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. I think before Kelly finally convinced uh, Lou DiBella to get his um, title fight with Goyo Vargas, um, Goyo Vargas, who a longtime champ, um, tough champion himself, um, televised the last time a featherweight title uh, fight happened was Salvador Sanchez against like Jorge Rocky Garcia in the early '80s. You know if, what I mean?
0: If something else did happen, I can't name it off the top of my head. That's for
1: sure. Exactly. So that was the start of it, and like Kelly having to come off, you know, having to come off the canvas against Vargas, outbox him, everything like that. Um, the person, and when a very, very good decision in a fight, you know, becomes champion. So now you got an exciting style. You got a guy who has good power, great boxing skills and can talk his ass off. Cause Kelly was a loud mouth, you know, and he was a very good promoter too. Like you just knew how to build himself up. That's how he convinced Lou to get him on. And once he became champion, he, um, he starts becoming like, you know, an HBO staple, so to speak. And they're about to give him like a long contract with a bunch of like, you know, multiple fights if he can get through some stuff. So first he fights Jesse Benavides, another um completely forgotten contender from the 80s and early 90s. And in a firefight that Kelly, again, has to come off the canvas to win, he does win that. But he's a favorite now. And so by the time he fights Alejandro Gonzalez in 1995, or was it like 94, 95, around that time, I, it was another show I watched live with my dad. And that was one of, the, uh, one of those early fights in my boxing fandom that like, made me go absolutely ape shit. Like, you've seen that fight, that It's incredible. You know, Gonzalez <laughs> and Kelly... Gonzalez was completely unknown.
0: Yeah, Kelly Cobrita. Was,
1: Cobrita. yes. Kelly, you know, was the proven commodity, fought multiple times on HBO, and was popular for a low-weight fighter. And Cobrita was just a beast that night. Came in just churning and churning. It wasn't and Kelly, who had notoriously bad eyes and would, you know, constantly swell started puffing up, started getting beat up and everything like that. And a couple of key moments in the fight I just remember that made me just like, wow, this is this is absolutely incredible what I'm watching. Gonzalez was beating the shit out of Kelly a few times. It looked like the fight was going to get stopped. Um, Kelly comes back and scores a dramatic-ass knockdown. Boom! Gonzalez goes down, literally bushwhacked of just what happened to him because he was in control of the fight and he doesn't, like, you see his eyes and he's kind of like, wait, whoa? And then dramatically gets on one knee and crosses himself before he gets up because he's just like holy crap like you know things just got real and then he goes back into war like you know it's beautiful shit like that and it's just like you know
0: yeah, Kelly's eye was all fucked up and I mean yeah. in today they probably would have stopped that like a couple rounds earlier but totally. I mean totally. you know he got his chance and it was bad
1: but it was an incredible fight that's still yeah. remembered by hardcores like us and then the main event was Wilfredo Vasquez, a longtime underappreciated former bantamweight and junior featherweight champion, defending his crown, excuse me, against Orlando Conizales, one of the longest reigning bantamweight champions in history. So at that point, this was the first time that it looked like the networks were really embracing the lowerweight fighters because they were featuring them in two prominent fights like this. So this is what the momentum was going. This was the wave that was going to end up propelling us to where we ended up getting with Hamed and Kelly.
0: Yeah, and and it's still, we talked about it recently on the most recent episode about Neoya Inoue and his path up to Mm -hmm. bantamweight and whatnot and how it's still kind of a struggle to get uh, promoters and networks and apps or whatever to feature the lower weight fighters. But finally, you know, there was some breakthrough uh, in in the late 90s here. And when they finally matched Nassim Ahmed and Kevin Kelly, um, so the... Ahmed's fight right before that and I posted about this on the boxing history account just because I was thought it was funny it was just hilarious the way that Ahmed talked fucking trash because it was like it was aggravating I would I would have been annoyed by it too if I were Kevin <laughs> Kelly bro for real but like uh so he, voice too he, yeah
1: Madison Square Garden yeah <laughs> <laughs> if you that really true, that he just knew he was getting you fucking riled up because oh yeah
0: he knew it he absolute one absolutely 100 with his massive ears and his <laughs> getting <in> your face <laughs> and his little haircut he knew it but like uh so he beats jose Badillo uh and that's i think that's the that's probably they had it under contract for for him to fight kevin kelly and this is on sky where there where he fights jose Badillo. And you know how they they still do this shit on a lot of the uh, UK broadcasts where they have the fighter go sit down on the apron and and they interview my on the apron. <laughs> I, Why? I don't know. I mean, I don't have a problem with it. It's just it's funny because it's almost stereotypical at this point. So they have uh, Kevin Kelly ringside, too. And they're kind of like, you know, interviewing Hamed and he's blah, 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 talking shit and and he's all he's like laughing at himself cuz it's like he can't even keep a straight face half the time when he's talking shit you know cuz he's such a goofball and yeah. so then they they bring over Kevin Kelly to sit down and he just starts yapping in Kelly Kevin Kelly's ear and he's going like "whoa relax relax" and you could hear Kevin Kelly go like "you relax" <laughs> he's like he's like "no dude i'm done with your shit bro" It's fucking pretty funny, and so you could see it. Uh, I don't know how much, how many people in the U.S. even saw that at the time. Probably very, very few. But still, I would have if I were in the U.K. and saw that, that would have gotten me like, yeah, let's get this shit going. But, uh, but Kevin Kelly, you know, even just from a stylistic point of view, tends to be in fun fights. Yeah. Good punching power. Good technician. Won the new york golden gloves uh twice in the mid 80s you know he was he was a very good fighter he wasn't like he was just some unknown dude he is, he had a lot of style and class it was i think there was a question as to like was he past it because he was a few years past winning
1: the title um and he you know, struggled Pat. he definitely struggled in those years and that's what i was yeah. about to say is that really quickly is that after he lost to gonzalez you know, it looked like for a minute he was cooked. You know what I mean? Like he did not look good in his in his subsequent fights for a little while. Um, He fights a guy named Ricardo Rivera, which by all accounts is one of those Lee Groves um, closet classics, as we like to call them. And he got dropped a couple of times. He, he struggled on that one. He fights um, Bones Adams, which I remember watching. I think that was on pay-per-view. And that fight sucked.
0: Dude, dude Bones Adams, I'm sorry. But he was so – he was absolute NyQuil sometimes, most yes. of the time.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> unless he, unless he was fighting Polly Ayala, who just forced you to be in a good fight,
0: he yeah. would um, just throw punches relentlessly until you yeah. threw him back.
1: Exactly. So I mean, <laughs> but yeah, that just fight was not made for the weak of heart. And if um everybody talks about John Ruiz fights to fall asleep to, go ahead. I guarantee you, if you've never seen Kevin Kelly Bones Adams, you'll be gone by round four. I promise you that. <laughs> so. But this is where I was looking. You know what made Kevin Kelly, though, like, what ended up propelling him eventually to the Hamed fight um, was the Derek Gaynor fight. His first fight with Derek Gaynor.
0: Derek Gaynor, bro. the Roy Jones Jr.'s little cousin or not yeah, literally, but just, you know, Roy Jones was always toting him around on his undercards, man. I mean, it, you
1: know something? Get you, get you a friend who takes care of you like Roy used to take <laughs> care of Derek Gaynor.
0: It it, And it was just like, nobody asked to see him. Nobody wanted to see it. Nobody really, you know, with all due respect, but God damn it. They were going to keep putting that shit on TV, but no, uh, that was, and that was also in my opinion, for that reason, satisfying too, because Gaynor was so frustrating to watch. He was the kind of fighter that would like, if a fight was breaking out, no, it wasn't. He'd make sure it was not he mm-hmm. was going to stifle you and hold you and run from you and dip and whoa, whoa, and do all sorts of shit to make sure no action. And like, you know, uh Kevin Kelly, his face again, falling apart. Well, I'm, that well, was one. Was and, yeah. Wasn't that another one where his eye was all messed up and then out of nowhere, he just goes boop and fucking hits Gainer. Well,
1: well his eye was completely closed. I'm shocked. Again, it's one of those fights that there's no way. This this fight happened in ninety six. There's no way that this fight would be uh let alone continue today. That doctor would see that, see that completely shut and just be like, nah, not a chance.
0: <laughs> yeah, dude. It's uh it's for that reason it was satisfying. Similar to how when Gaynor was uh, getting kind of getting some traction again a couple of years later, and Juan Manuel Marquez just damn near ran him out of the ring. Also satisfying. Also satisfying. Well, That was
1: one of the worst fights ever aired. It was, it was terrible. Just the that, result was, was satisfying. satisfying. I picked Game to win that fight. Really.
0: A lot of people did, dude. You know what? A lot of people did. Because, like I said, he had a really frustrating style. Yeah,
1: you know. But, God, and- he
0: was scared to death of Marquez. He was just like, ah, get me out of
1: here. But that was what propelled him to get, you know, to the Ahmed fight. Because, like, for a while, he was just toiling. Like the Kevin Kelly, the, the Kevin Kelly, the uh, the Derek Gaynor fight out of the out of those years was the only one that made it to HBO. Other than that, like you said, he was fighting on the undercard of pay per view shows or on like ESPN or something like that. You know, he was he had to build himself back. This wasn't like being a welterweight or a middleweight heavyweight where you lose one and immediately can go right back on HBO and you know do something like that. No, you know he had to build himself back. He had that, and he also had a fight. I, I'm looking at his box rec record really quick against Edwin Santana that was on the early days of boxing after dark that fight sucked too all right that was one of the first duds that HBO actually aired on boxing after dark after like the string of impressive fights that they had they you knew a dud was coming eventually and that was the one so you know Kelly had to prove himself after he not after um you know he, he had to build himself back up so he did deserve that on that fight and putting it in Madison Square Garden was perfect because you knew there was going to be, like you said, a lively atmosphere that was going to be calling for Hamed's head because New York fans are ruthless and they're going to go very hard for their own. And especially for an obnoxious idiot like Hamed, as people perceived him to be, they were just going to want to see the Prince get his
0: comeuppance. 100%, dude. Yeah, 100%. <clears throat> it was the kind of card that actually, you know, when I when I looked at this card... So we'll talk about the co-feature in just a sec, but I never really bothered looking at the the whole event, the entire card, and looking at it, it had Yoan Guzman when he was 1-0 and opening up the card, Ricky Hatton when he was 1-0, and right after that, Charles Shufford, who of course later on would turn into more of a, you know, kind of fringe journeyman type, uh, but he was 6-0, and David Telesco in his younger years, Jason Papillon, remember that guy, Danny Williams, he was 11 0. Michael Clark, when he was still undefeated.
1: Wow, that's a blast from the past. (laughs) I'm
0: pretty sure he was a Golden Gloves winner at some point, too. And he He was was on the contender
1: as well.
0: Yeah, that's true. Many years later, for sure. So, I mean, like, it was, I'm not saying it was like a blockbuster, which was not like, you know, King and his prime card type of thing going on.
1: You went there for the co feature, like you said, we're about to mention, and the main event.
0: But there was a lot of fights on it. So at least people probably got their money's worth. But then, yeah, between the co feature and the main event, dude, like the, I guess we'll, we'll break and we'll talk about the co feature real quick if that's cool. But,
1: yeah,
0: I mean, it, it was, its
1: own whole, I mean, that's its own whole backstory, too, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, well, and it, and it ties into what we're talking about, too. Like we said, we were talking about uh, boxing after dark and all that type of shit. Um, you know, Kennedy McKinney he goes back farther even obviously to the 1984 Olympics is when really what's that? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. 88, Uh, the 88 Olympics when he won gold and you know, Roy Jones also should have won gold on that team. Uh, Let's see Ray Mercer on that team. You know, I mean, it's oh. a, yeah, it's, it's a, a number of uh, fairly famous fighters on that team and et cetera. But, um, you know, kennedy mckinney i guess between being in a somewhat tough division but also his own personal demons dude you know he had a he had a really tough career and a tough time as an adult you know he 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 was a very troubled dude um and i mean so between the what was it? i think it was the first fight because they fought twice welcome Sita yeah
1: i mean welcome, yeah yeah
0: Absolute fucking war, absolute their, fucking their war.
1: Their first fight is one of my all time favorite fights, and it is criminally underrated today. But uh, like you know, unless you're hardcore is like us, but I mean, it was just that's one of Cedric's, uh, my old boss Cedric Kushner, one of the best fights he ever promoted. You know, welcome, to, welcome to Sita, welcome to Nita. however you want to pronounce it? Was um, Junior Featherweight Champion, uh, South African dude back in the back in the late '80s, early '90s, and what I like the most about him is that, like, you know, he was a young, brass champion who was just a high level, highly skilled guy, but sometimes would fight to the level of his opposition. He would struggle, like, you know, in fights that he should dominate and he wouldn't, and he would just, you would wonder, like, you know, where his consistency would be at. He also had a really cool-ass high-top fate, so I was always just a fan of that. But regardless, he stepped it up to, like, he fought the performance of his life in the first fight with McKinney. And he was dominant. well, I don't want to say dominating, but he was, com- he was clearly in command in the fight. And if the fight was held in the U.S., I think it would be like remembered more fondly, but Cedric had a tendency to, um, hold a lot of his title fights in, in various like, you know, exotic locations. And, um, I don't remember off the top of my head cause I'm not looking at it where this one was held, but it definitely was not held in, uh, in America. It was either Italy or like Tunisia or somewhere out there. And, um, but regardless of all that Nita was putting on a clinic, and I think it was around round 11, as you said, that like when he was about to finish him, McKinney gets hurt by a combination, turns his back and goes down on a knee. And he's like clearly in distress and hurt. And then as Nita comes in to finish him, McKinney throws his right hand, wow, just blast him and brings on the title.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was like last chance saloon, dude. It was the last, you know, and actually... Steve Smoger was the referee of that fight in Italy. You're right, yeah.
1: It was in Italy, okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, and Steve Smoger. So, I mean, that kind of makes a little extra sense as to why the fight was allowed to go on. True, Um, but yeah, most
1: referees would stop it because the way McKinney turned his back, like that was a sign of surrender. He turned his back and went down and just covered himself. You know.
0: Yeah, and somehow he mustered, you know, the the strength to throw that one last shot that put to put the dude out it was just absolutely brutal dude and i mean uh but i think that it was already clear that it was it was shit was starting to crumble for him he was having difficulty keeping it together he was having a tough time uh keeping his his performances consistent uh i i can't remember right off the top of my head i'm pretty sure it was cocaine right that he was yeah yeah, he kept getting into like cocaine and alcohol Um, and so, I mean, it's just, it's a simple fact, dude, that pretty much anybody at the higher level of boxing, you just can't do that. Mm -hmm. Like you, at least not for a sustained period of time, you know, you just can't do it. It's going to take a toll on your career. And so that's pretty much what wound up happening with Kennedy McKinney. But, um, you know, he, he, even after, you know, uh, these ups and downs in the early to mid nineties kind of redeemed himself. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking about boxing after dark, despite the fact that he lost, you know uh, well, actually we can even go, go a little bit uh, uh, farther than that. Like he had a couple of kind of redemptive arcs over the course of his career, but well, I mean, whatever, I guess going to the Barrera fight, because he was somewhat inactive boxing after dark, massive platform they were starting this platform on hbo uh marco antonio barrera himself was kind of like you know wavering back and forth himself how many times did he resurrect his career you know what i mean um but they were kind of like all right uh lou de put together this this uh show on hbo that was like all right well if it's not championship level or if we don't have a world title on the line. We can still feature these fights that are really interesting or stylistically the fights that people would want to see, and they're still high level. It's just that, you know, I guess we're not going to call it the championship, whatever. So it was boxing after dark. And so I think that was the outlook for Kennedy McKinney was that he needed a chance. Marco Antonio Barrera needed a chance. And even though Marco Antonio Barrera wound up winning and triumphantly Kennedy McKinney, the showing was kind of like enough to to demonstrate that he wasn't done, you know, that he still had a little bit of spark in him and that he fought hard and that he did everything that he could. He kept getting up, you know, he got knocked down what four or five times in that fight and he, he kept getting up. It was just the last one was too much. Um. So, I mean, going into this under undercard fight, Kennedy McKinney and junior Jones.
1: I mean, so after McKinney loses to Barrera, like you said, He, even though he loses, he kind of resurrected and brought a lot of, you know, lightning back to his career because it was faltering for a bit. He lost his title to Vianne Bungu, which was uh, the ring's upset of the year. And he was just kind of withering on the vine. But after he beats Barrera, that was just like, holy shit. People were just like, you know, that was one of the best fights I had ever seen up to that point in my life. I lost my voice. My dad lost his voice. Everybody was going crazy watching that. And that, you know, you couldn't have asked for a better start to HBO's Boxing After Dark and you couldn't have had a better boost for the lower weight fighters too to show that they deserved a fucking chance to be shown on television and be featured prominently as opposed to like you know always saying okay if I'm going to show a lower weight fight it has to be lightweight at a minute at the at the lowest or something like that like these guys were showing them like hey we deserve the air time too and we're some of the best fighters in the world and we can put on the best fights in the world, you know some of the best fights you can watch but mckinney even after that like he struggled for a bit he wasn't he didn't look that great in his subsequent fights um, I remember the Nesta Lopez fight that was on a boxing after dark undercard, I believe. And he looked like crap in that fight. That was in the fight. He looked good in, and he almost lost it. He loses a rematch to Bungu. And again, after that, he fights Hector Ocero Sanchez, um, who was a former, um, Superman away champion himself in a general pain in the ass to anyone he had to fight. Like Hector Ocero Sanchez made everybody look bad. So McKinney wasn't just look, wasn't looking too hot. As you know, when he was moving um, into his chance against Junior Jones, the opposite now can be said about Junior Jones, Junior Jones, another person came from the same thing, late 80s, early 90s, long um amateur uh, and everything like that and very popular in New York City. And when he first burst on, man, like people were giving him comparisons to like Tommy Hearns and stuff as a bandwagon, because look at his dimensions, he was tall, he was lanky. um had the same kind of like arms length and he was just knocking the shit out of everybody too like he was a spectacular fighter so by the time he ends up winning the title against jorge lsc or julio who was a who was a very solid champion um people were looking at jones and you know potentially thinking of him as like uh, pound for pound because that's how good he looked and, you know it was just no one had seen an american white that solid and that good since the days of jeff chandler you know what i mean so it was like people were very very high on jones And then um, by the time he ends up fighting and he loses the title now in a huge upset to um, a guy he had beat earlier in his career, actually, John Michael Johnson. And, you know, if you remember Johnson, he was a a Texas fighter from the uh, Tony Ayala senior camp. You know, unspectacular, but he could punch like a motherfucker. You know what I mean? Considering what he did later on a few against guys later on. But, like, anyways, at this point, this was not supposed to happen. Jones was outboxing him, winning the fight mostly. I think this was on the undercard of uh, Holyfield and Michael Moore. But he just, he gets spent. He just, you know, gets exhausted. And Johnson scored a knockout. And instead of like, you know, people were just like, oh, okay. You know, it was an upset, but we'll see how he comes back. Nah, it looked like Junior Jones completely fell apart after that. Because soon after that, in like his second uh, comeback fight or so, he fights a guy by the name of Daryl Pickney. Daryl Pickney back then was one of those journeymen with a 0. .500 record. But he was tough as shit. Very good fighter. I'm not, I don't want to say a very good fighter, but a tough-as-nails fighter who could punch. And if he didn't come in prepared, he could surprise you. And that's exactly what happened to Jones because he got flattened by Pickney. <laughs> and at that point, nobody thought Jones... Everybody thought Jones was the dumb. Like, you know, there's no resurrecting him after that. Like, whatever. But to his credit, he built himself back up. And he built himself back up enough to... um. Where he able, where he was able to get an undercard slot against Orlando Condezalis, a very very good matchup, on the uh, early days of the boxing the second boxing after Dark Show, and, you know, that's one of those fights, Pat. That like I tell people, everybody mentions, you know, like James Tony, Mike McCallum, or other fights like that that you should watch for technical skill. You should watch Junior Jones and Orlando Condezalis. It is shit is beautiful. They're playing chess against each other. The counters, the counter counters, the the feints, the movements. They're so much thinking is going on in there, and it's a beautiful fight to watch. But Jones clearly wins it, and at that point, that brings him to where we're gonna. I'll, I'll bring it to you now. His first fight with Marco Antonio Barrera.
0: It, it's crazy too because the uh, Orlando conizales fight, Junior Jones, like it, in almost any interview you can find, you ask and they say like. Everybody he says everybody wants to talk about the Marco Antonio Barrera fights, but in my opinion, the Orlando Canizales fight was me at my best. Like that was me looking at my best and you know, performing my best. That was my best performance. And it was it was a damn good performance against another fighter where he said Junior Jones said that he had been wanting to fight Orlando Canizales for a while. Uh, and I mean you could see why, because Orlando Canizales is the kind of guy who is super sharp. Moved really well, flashy, uh, you know, just highly skilled, and he wanted a crack at him, and he And they, were champions,
1: up... and they were champions at the same time in the division. That's why. And yeah. and
0: yeah, he said he wound up not getting the opportunity to fight him as a champion, and so he fought him later on after they had already moved to 122 pounds, and he said that he thought that was his best performance. Um, but I mean, he kind of just kept plugging away. And he, for the most part, was defeating. He was just kind of racking up wins. Like you said, it was that was part of a kind of a redemption or a comeback for him. And then at that point, Marco Antonio Barrera, 43 and 0, he had fought at the forum like a dozen times. You know, he was super popular in Southern California and in Mexico. Um, And he was is supposedly one of the favorites at HBO. He was a fighter that HBO really liked or that HBO really wanted to embrace or whatever. And so they had him uh, matched with Junior Jones. Like they were kind of like, all right, Junior, you know, this is your chance. And Junior Jones, according to him, you know, he talked a lot of trash because he always felt he could win. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that's one of those bigger upsets in the mid nineties where Barrera was definitely not expected to lose that fight whatsoever. Not, you know, not like much less just get kind of sunned and absolutely fucking whooped and then have his corner step in for him, you know, with the weeping and
1: the, <laughs> you know, Oh yeah. And the guy throwing a wet sponge at Jones. Yeah. Was, like, that fur got cooked.
0: <laughs> like, bro, you come and just help your guy. Don't embarrass him too. God damn. You know, it, that's like, on that's not quite on the level, but approaching the level of homie carrying Tommy Hearns away from Marvin Hagler. Like, bro, let the stretcher <laughs> take him. If it's like that, like, God damn it. <laughs> You know, it was, that was, it was bad, dude. And it was, you know, bad sportsmanship and et cetera. It was, but it was a big upset. It was a real big upset.
1: It was huge. I mean, like you said, Brewer was on top of the world at this point. He had the McKinney fight and then he had fun on HBO subsequently, you know, a few times after that. Um, He knocked out Jesse Benavides. I think was on a pay-per-view. He beat the hell out of a guy by the name of uh, Jesse Magana, who was a popular Southern California pup fighter in the, in the mid nineties. And, yeah, there was there was nobody that was going to be able to touch Barrera. It was when it came to the lower weights, the junior featherweights, everything like that. It started with Barrera, and then there was everybody below him. Eric Morales at this point hadn't become champion yet. Daniel Zaragoza wasn't thought was thought not to be a champ, you know, not to be a threat to Barrera. Hamed was still toiling in England, and you know there was magazines that discussed the possibility of them fighting, but. At that point, it was still a crap shoot that no one thought would happen. So, yeah, you know, Barrera was was that dude. And Junior Jones, like we said, he had come back from a long, you know, a long winning streak now and built himself back up. And he had the kind win that he was building off of. Um, at that point, still, everybody thought that Brera would still steamroll him. And, you know, the Brera that we ended up watching, like the complete fighter, the boxer, boxer puncher that he became, from the Hamed fight, from the Jesus Salute fight before that, you know, stuff like that, so on. That wasn't the Brera that was, that was still the seek and destroy guy from the early um in the mid-90s that he was that didn't mind taking a punch or so before he went in there and waited away. And so Jones was able to capitalize on that, you know, land those right hands right hand after right hand after right hand and Brera had no answer for them shits, like, you know, and so not to say Brera didn't do any damage, he landed some good body shots here and there, but Jones was just quicker than him had better, you know, and everything, and then when he finally dropped him, it was right there, and you saw the blood coming down. Barrera just looking bewildered, and yeah, huge upset.
0: Yeah, it, it was only what, like the fifth or sixth round, and it looked like it was like the ninth or tenth. Like he was, yeah. like he looked a little beat up for what it was, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: it, it was, it was clear though that he, uh, you know, it was it was a big upset. And so uh, in, the, in the tradition of stubborn bastards, Barrera said, run that shit back. And actually, I think it was the WBO. The WBO ordered a, an immediate rematch. And I, I would imagine Barrera probably wanted it because he wouldn't have fought if he didn't want it. But um, so they ran it back and it was a far more competitive fight. Marco Antonio Barrera showed why years later you should never count him out in pretty much any fight uh, and that he is a uh, supreme technician and the kind of fighter who can learn from performances and stuff like that. Um, You know, some cards did score the rematch for him. I don't think that was the kind of fight that he won personally. I thought Junior Jones just kind of outsped him and outdid him a little bit. But regardless, Barrera did much better. He obviously improved in the rematch, no question.
1: Absolutely, but like you said, Jones definitely won that fight. It was a close, much. It was a very close fight, but Jones, you know, was the superior guy in it. And building off of that momentum, I, you know, again, Jones now was back at where surprisingly was back where he was when he was bandway champion, if not even more so now. Like people had him on, not only was he on the pound for pound list. I remember specifically, like he was actually high up it wasn't like he was around nine or ten like people had him at like number six number five like he was definitely you know those barrera wins gave him a lot of weight at that point you know what i mean and people were thinking like the super fight to be made was going to be junior jones against um uh nasi you know and all he had to do was get through kennedy and mckinney at mass square garden and here's the thing at this point now junior jones He's so, like, he's feeling so, so much, and he's at, like, at the height of his career, even more so than Bantamweight Champion, that, like, um, there was a Ring magazine where they did an article, and he had a hit list of who the guys he was going to fight and who he wanted to beat and everything like that. And it featured Hamed, it featured um, Daniel Zaragoza, um, Kevin Kelly, he said they were friends, and after he would beat Kelly, he would take him out to dinner, stuff like that. Um, Vianne Bungu and Kennedy McKinney. And the one he showed the most disdain for was Kenny McKinney. For whatever reason, he didn't like him. You know, I think they both uh they both came from the amateur system around the same time. I don't know if they crossed paths back then or whatever, but they did not like each other. There was a stage. Something was definitely just they didn't they didn't work. And Jones made it very clear that he thought McKinney was a bum. He didn't think anything of him. He thought he was washed, and that any the time they would fight, he would destroy him and like you know embarrass him, and he would be glad to do it. So. Again, he to his credit, said, too, that he didn't think Jones had a lot of heart and that if he, you know, was tested and had to, you know, um, really pull out the guts that he thinks that he was going to knock out Jones. So there was definitely a lot of bickering going on. So you couldn't ask for a better set, uh, set the stage for Jones. So he's at the height of his career. It's his birthday. I forgot what exactly he was. I think he was celebrating one of his birthdays. <laughs> and in his hometown, he's at MSG in front, uh, fighting in front of his crowd, and he's fighting his bitter enemy who he wants to whoop on badly. I mean, like, he thinks everything is set for the most perfect just night ever, and instead it becomes the ultimate disaster.
0: Absolute nightmare, dude. Absolute fucking nightmare. You know, um, Kenny, McKinney. he'd been through a lot in his career. Like we said, yeah. he was at a point in his career where a lot of people didn't really know exactly what it was he had left. Um, You know, apart from the drug use and whatnot, he'd been through a bunch of wars. He'd been hurt a number of times, et cetera. And so it really did seem like Junior Jones was being served like, all right, well, you know, like here's, here's this fighter who's at this perfect time for you, and it's a name fighter, so good luck. And that's what it turned out kind of looking like. But it's funny, and I know he said it in the third round, but I honestly did think it in the first when I was rewatching it. I was thinking, you know, Junior Jones is squaring up for that right hand a lot.
1: Yeah, because he was going for the knockout. Mm -hmm.
0: He's going right hand crazy and he was not being like slick or sneaky about it really at all. And the way that he was kind of like cocking his right hand, you know, like waiting to throw it. And Kennedy McKinney, the problem is that, again, he'd been through a lot. It's not, he's already not a super fast fighter. Good boxer, you know, well-polished boxer, good technique, just not super fast with either with his hands or his feet. And so Junior Jones, definitely more of a sharp, slick speedster. Um, you know, it was kind of like they're both boxer punchers, but Kennedy McKinney's got more of the puncher. Junior Jones got more of the boxer. You know what I mean? And so he was. It that's kind of what it looks like early. It looks like stylistically, Junior Jones is like he's squaring up a lot, but it's okay because he's got the speed and he's you know, pop, 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 you know, keeping it pretty sharp and whatnot. And even so, it was it was it was back and forth in the first round. It was pretty good.
1: It was, but you got the sense that Jones still had no disdain for McKinney, and he was built. He was looking for a quick knockout. Like he wanted to have a quick, you know, knockout birthday coronation, everything in front of the fans, and then hopefully in a dream world he would go in the ring afterwards and challenge Hamed after the fight or some shit like that, right? But you know, after I forgot what round it was, but like Junior Jones at round two just starts revving it up, and like the announcers even say it too. They're like, "Wow, he's really pushing it." Like he was throwing a ton of punches, and there's ways to be active without exerting so much energy, but Jones was throwing everyone's jabs. Or like throwing with full maximum force that I'm trying to take your head off and I'm trying to knock you the fuck out. Like I don't have any, I don't have um any business. You have no business being in the ring with me. So I'm just gonna make this as quick as possible and whatever. And he was doing that. McKenney, like you said, was slow, had been around the for a long time and was absorbing a lot of it. But the thing is, one thing McKenney can do besides being you know, besides being a good boxer and having a major right hand, is that he would he could absorb a lot of punishment. He proved that in the Barrera fight. Like he was a dangerous guy and he, you know, he could soak it up. So you weren't going to get him out of there really quickly, no matter how much you tried it. And then Jones was just there hitting him, hitting him, hitting him. Boom, 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 boom. And McKinney's taking it. And, you know, eventually he does go down. Like he has taken a knee. He was taking a lot of punishment, but he's still doing it. And like you said, every once in a while, he's throwing a counter back, boop, boop. And he's landing it. You know, it's not really stopping Jones's momentum, but at the same time, mckinney is you know in his head he's saying to himself at least i can still keep on catching him." and then at one point i think when there was a noticeable turn in the fight there was a headbutt and when the headbutt comes up there was a cut under jones's cheek you know and that almost made him start like pushing it even more the pace even more because like it bothered him that he got cut now you know and as he's doing that you just see him he's getting more wild he's flailing a little more because he's getting tired like he's throwing over a hundred something punches around you know and like everything with maximum velocity and yes he's doing damage but at the same time mckinney's really not going anywhere and mckinney's starting to get used to it and that's the last thing you need to happen so
0: yeah it was a it was a really bad cut luckily under his eye and on his cheek but it was deep it was was really deep deep. Mm -hmm. um but like you said dude and and on top of that like the (laughs) this was one of the few few fights where big george actually had some had some good insight as far as what was going on um yeah instead of instead of like you know small punches da 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 da, da boom you know like that kind of shit like what they teach you to do in the gym, he was just wham, bam, bam, crash, bash, you know, like just everything he was throwing was just massive. And it sure looked like in the second round and then into the third round, like he was beating Kenny McKinney's ass, dude, Kenny McKinney. It sure didn't look like he was going to be able to last very much longer. You know, he was getting whacked around real bad. Um, And I mean, I don't know what it was, but I think it was probably – he threw something like 100 punches or 101 punches, Junior Jones, that is, in round two. And then mm-hmm. I think they said he threw 103 or 106 or something like that in round three. And it was That's
1: like... Absolute bonehead strategy.
0: He just, he was not, he evidently was not ready to, to exert that much. And then on top of that, in the third round, or in the fourth round to start the round, like you said, Kennedy McKennedy, like... I'm not one of those people who believes in like equations when it comes to styles and stuff like that. Like there are too many variables, but I do believe that timing can beat speed for sure. You know, speed, generally speaking, speed and skills can beat power. They usually do, but timing can beat speed. If you're out, if somebody is much faster than you, you can time them. You can still hit them even if they're much faster than you. And that's what Kenny McKennedy was doing was he was, timing jr jones when jones was getting right hand happy and squaring up kenny mckinney was leaning in and bop you know just kind of uh getting him and then another thing he was doing was they were getting locked up in the clinch and kenny mckinney had his right hand free and was bashing him on the temple Mm -hmm. and that's the kind of shit that will you know that'll fuck you up and it might not seem like it is but it's it, it wears on you and so in round four, it was like a steady diet of these right hands for Junior Jones, and it was like you could see the little power meter, like a video game, like with each right hand, it was going, brr, yeah, yeah, brr, yeah. Brr. but it was like he was taking it, and then after a few of them, it was like he wasn't taking it so good. Or dude. you know,
1: if you ever play fight night and you're whooping on a guy's ass, but for whatever reason, they won't get knocked out. And, you know, like, the stamina in that game is really wonky where, like, the guy will throw 100 more punches but, than you, but he only loses 5% of his stamina where you lose 20% of yours. Yeah. So, like, by round 10, you're sitting there and you're, like, and you're saying to yourself in the game, you're like, all I gotta do is hold up for two more rounds. And then he punches you and you go down you can't get up, right?
0: Yeah, and you do the slow-mo, like, rrr, Yeah, rrr. yeah,
1: yeah. And then you fall in sections. Like, basically what happened <laughs> to Jones, except it happened in round four. He was cooked. He had absolutely nothing. And it was one of the most damning just collapses i had ever seen up in that point in the ring like that's how how do they describe it when you say the runner reaches the wall the the you know that wall that they reach when they can't run anymore and they just kind of stop and they're dead oh
0: they're yeah crying. yeah they just like hit a wall yeah yeah hit a
1: wall that's what jones did you know the wall being kenny mckinney's right hand but like he just he was exhausted and it was and it was and everyone was wondering like why would he do that what was the purpose of that i mean in my mind, I think only because like he was in his hometown, he was at MSG in the big room, he was at the height of his career now, finding a guy that he felt was nothing to him, that he hated. It's his birthday, and he's beating the daylights out of him, and he thought, okay, let me try to get him out. But I mean, all that exertion just blew it, and McKinney just kind of outlasted him.
0: And it's not unheard of for mm-hmm. a fighter you know especially like a featherweight like level a featherweight size fighter to throw a hundred uh punches in a round like don't get me wrong that's still a lot like and you know i mean you're you know compu box oh, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: but like a hundred punches regardless is a lot but it's not unheard of
1: but well, when you're going over the years whoa,
0: but, whoa. but yeah is maximum trying to it's,
1: knock it
0: it's not like the it's not just you know this oh, kind of shit no, you know on the I ropes But it's just whoom, whoom. But also on top of that, you could see another, like talking about the power meter, you could see that he was winging these shots and Kennedy McKinney was wisely just ducking, like bobbing, weaving against the ropes. And Junior Jones was just like, whoo, you know, like swinging, missing. And you could just see, like, it was just, he was getting exhausted, dude. He was getting totally exhausted. Um, but then the way that he collapses too, like when you, when they let it go on and then they start pelt, oh my God, dude, It was a, it was a, a very wild co-feature, uh, to start the evening, you know, Kenny McKinney just starts putting it on him because junior Jones has nothing and he could probably feel it, you know, really? like in the clinches, like he's just getting pushed over and shit like that. And he gets knocked down. And so then uh referee Wayne Kelly, who they even noted at the time because it had just happened like the year earlier, that Wayne Kelly was the one who disqualified uh, Andrew Galata against Riddick Bo the first time. Yeah. And so he lets it go on because he's like, all right, I'm giving you a chance because uh, Junior Jones is like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And he, they go to resume and Junior Jones, his legs just like give out like he just goes blah, blah, and falls forward. Like, and of course, thank goodness he stopped the fight. But, I mean, very Vladimir Klitschko, Lehman Brewster-esque.
1: Yeah, yeah. You Good know? Well, absolutely. And that was, and you know what? If Hotman Kelly didn't happen, that would have been a dramatic enough fight. That would have made it a solid showing up in itself, you know? But it, that was a huge upset, and that's what, like, catapulted it back to the main event because now all the cards were, like, you know, unshuffled again. People were expecting uh, Junior Jones to win this and then challenge the winner of the main event fight. Like, this was not what was supposed to happen. So now Kenny McKinney was all of a sudden catapulted um, back into the limelight, uh, into the forefront. And, um, yeah, that was like, you know, the momentum happening right there. People were just like, holy shit, you knew you were going to be in for a spectacular night now. Because after that happened, I mean, you know... It's hard to even come down from that. But then, like, with the buildup of that and then the main event getting ready to start, people were just, like, the excitement level was at an all-time high. So Kelly comes to the ring as we transfer, I guess, back to the main event, right? Kelly comes to the ring, and people are hyped, you know. This is his home and everything like that. And I believe this was the first time that he had fought in the main building, in the the big house, as a professional. Like, you know, in the Golden Gloves final, stuff like that at least back then, he would fight, which was pretty pretty cool, um, in the big building at Madison Square Garden. But most of his fights happened at the, um, at the uh, Hammerstein, not Hammerstein, What's it? The um At M- the, the the mini MSG. Yeah, so the, the theater. Film. Yeah, the theater, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, he felt this was his home. Hamed is invading his home and everything like that. And, like, this was the big time. Hamed making his American debut at MSG. Um I remember they already had a giant billboard out at Times Square when Hamed on it. Like, they were promoting the shit out of this. This was, like, a big, big deal, you know? And when his entrance started, like, it was, you know, I already watched a couple of his fights and knew kind of knew what I was expecting. But I didn't see anything like this. And when the whole thing came out with, like, the white sheet and it looked like it was going to be, like, a fashion show type thing going on, you know what I mean? Like, with the runway and everything like that. Like, it was just crazy. It was so cool to see. And then it started lasting long and longer and longer.
0: <laughs> that, was, that was one thing about his entrances, dude, was that he didn't give a fuck like who he was inconveniencing with, uh, with this entrance. But I've said it numerous times on different episodes and podcasts and, and shit like that. And we just mentioned it on the last show. I love the pageantry, I love the yeah. ring walks. I love doing that shit up. If it's silly, whatever. Like I I love that shit because it's like, they don't fighters don't have beyond like the press conferences and stuff like that. Fighters don't, they don't have a ton of opportunities to like be unique or show their personality or do something fun or whatever. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you know, I think that there's a lot going on. It's stressful um some fighters are nervous and they have like a pre-fight ritual and stuff like that so they're not going to be doing anything all that creative or whatever and that's fine like they don't have to nobody's going to be being forced to do some crazy shit but i i always enjoy that i like when they do fun stuff for ring walks even like i know this is going to sound wild dude but joe Messi, i know the third franchise our buffalo guy but no, he always did like a fun ring walk too. Like I remember one time they did some show in Buffalo, and he like started up in the fucking stands and like did a whole like walk down the bleachers. And I was like, Oh, that's pretty fucking cool. You know, like that's that that's that'll get you hyped. Um you know, they do it more far more in the UK than they do it here, et cetera, et cetera. I won't belabor the point, but Nassim Ahmed always had some cool shit going on. His his Halloween fucking ring entrance dude I mean nobody yeah, yeah, did yeah, that shit oh, yeah, that was amazing. comes over he knocks the fucking skeleton
1: <laughs> he looks he goes and then he makes the face again and keeps on walking I mean I it's love a,
0: that. he's a total goofball yeah. but I mean but I, I love that kind of shit but you could tell though uh, that he like like you were saying it gets, it gets to the crowd and it's a needle in the crowd and it's kind of poking at him and like just like what are you gonna well, do what I
1: read though and um I forgot where I read it, but I heard that there was some kind of malfunction. He wasn't supposed to be behind the curtain as long as he was. And if and if you and from reading that and if you watch it, you can tell there's a couple of times where he like you can see his body language stop from him like really being into it and dancing to him kind of just like you can see you know, there's a there's a slight noticeable change where he's like, Okay, I'm still going with it, but you can tell he's like, Okay, what the fuck is happening here? Like, you know. <sighs> He's trying to like, at one point he goes like that and, and you know, they, they're still doing it and he's like, okay, fine. And then he stops and he's still, and then he like starts shadow boxing a little bit, but then he's just kind of like looking again. And and that's around the point where you're like, okay, like, all right, the thing was supposed to open at this point. Okay. I get it. And then it finally does. And that's when like it expedites a little bit to the ring, but like, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it was just, it was, it was hilarious. You watch that, you, you hear the announcers because Lampley, um especially foreman and uh merchant who never really witnessed anything like this merchant who was always like an old school guy and kind of hard to please and you know would rumble about a lot of stuff actually he like he liked it remember in the commentary he was like this is so crazy i kind of like he was like it's kind of great <laughs>
0: <laughs> well and and they already know um it seems that they, a lot of people, already had kind of an inkling of the kind of stuff that he likes to do pre-fight and whatnot. Yeah. So they're like, "Oh, so what is he going to do when he gets into the ring this time? Is he going to do the flip, or is he going to do the dip, the slip? You know, <laughs> all sorts of shit." And and of course, sure enough, he flips over the top rope. Which I mean, is,
1: Kelly's face.
0: it's no small athletic feat either, with for such like a little guy who. The ropes are like you know this height, like like his head height almost, and he flips over the rope and just runs like right into Kevin Kelly's face and like confronts him to the point where it's just like
1: that's he's such a field, just
0: movie. arrogant. Yeah, yeah, he did not give a fuck. So you're just sitting there going, oh, I can't fucking wait. I can't wait for this guy to get his head fucking punched. You know. And, and You and,
1: say the referee Benji Estevez, every like when he breaks them up. You see him smirking because he you know, he finds this hilarious too. Ahmed's <laughs> there, rah, 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 and 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 you know what, Pat? What's interesting is that like as they get into it, you can tell they like each other. Like they don't yeah, hate. they're not
0: swinging. They're not no. like they're not like pushing or shoving or nothing. No, Ahmed's just...
1: messing with him, and Kelly is like you know with its yeah, he's like okay, like okay, okay, okay. The only time Kelly got like really. Agitated is when it was taking so long for him to get in the ring, and at one point you see Kelly get on the ropes and he's going like this, like yelling, yeah, then, yeah, yelling yeah. get your ass in the ring already, Enough is enough of this shit. <laughs> and then you hear Merchant, Kevin Kelly wants to get in here and fight. <laughs>
0: yeah, dude, it was admittedly it was a, uh, I will say like Larry Merchant had his had his calls where I was where I was just kind of like, dude, I could take him or leave him. But yeah. he did have some great calls, and this was a night where he had a great call too, yeah yeah, yeah they
1: everybody was hyped,
0: they're getting in each other's face, and like it's it's pretty good natured and shit like that. but then Larry Merchant right before the bell rings, he drops a great line. a lot of people want to know, is the prince for real like he's a real prince, or is he a frog,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: It's just the kind of shit that, like, you know, only Larry Merchant could get away with and have it be, like, actually, like, cool. You know, like, oh, okay.
1: And then I think it was Merchant that meant, that made, like, a comment when he first came out about, like, smoke and mirrors or whatever, and then fucking Lampley drops the egg, he goes, and we don't mean smoke gainer. Thanks, man. <laughs> Yeah,
0: he had a couple of weird, like, one-line dad jokes on this broadcast that were just like...
1: Yeah, man, you dork, shut up.
0: I know it's the wow. 90s, and you got that bow tie on, but... Chill, bro. What are you doing?
1: Exactly. But, uh, you know, so they get in there they do that and then, like, you have the entrance and it's like, you just felt the excitement because they're both in there and, you know, they're both just really hyped about it. And Like, Hamed gets in there and when they do, like, um, when Buffer announces them, Hamed has his hands up like that and he's there, uh, you know, talking shit to Kelly's face and I'm, like, my excitement level as a kid right now, I'm doing cartwheels in my house. Like, I'm going to hike because <laughs> I just, I don't know, you just felt it. Like, you just knew this was going to be something special to watch. I didn't, but we didn't know how special it was going to end up becoming. Like, I favored the prince to win the fight, but I was hoping Kelly was going to be able to exploit him a little bit. But I had no idea what I was going to witness because I knew Hamed's style was so unorthodox, and I didn't know what kind of, you know, Kevin Kelly was going to show up. But, I mean, we found out quickly in that first round.
0: It it took, I think it was two minutes into the first round or something like that. Yeah, um, first
1: off, it was pretty uneventful, no?
0: Yeah, I'm, well, and I mean, I think that you're looking, you could see that Kevin Kelly definitely has a, a somewhat technical style. He's a puncher, but he's like a boxer puncher. It definitely comes from more kind of a, a technical upbringing and a good amateur career, like we were saying. And they're kind of just feeling each other out. And on top of that, it's Southpaw versus Southpaw, which adds an extra level... Of and for anybody listening or watching and they're like, What is that? I don't know why is that any why is that special? If I think that Southpaws see a lot of other southpaws in the amateurs, I've heard that a lot. I've heard Southpaws say, like, oh yeah, in the amateurs, you see a lot of southpaws, but in the pros, like you barely see them. And you know, it's it's kind of true. Um, you just go through the list of like the first southpaw champions from various divisions, and some of them it's like shit didn't happen to like 20 years ago. You know, it's fucking wild. But like, point being that the southpaw versus southpaw matchup is a really strange matchup because it doesn't happen that often in the pros. And then on top of that, like it takes away the quote unquote southpaw advantage that one fighter might have, where the southpaw has a different look that they're used to seeing. And the right-hander's like, well, all right, now i got to figure out weird angles and shit. Mm-hmm. But then put two southpaws together, that advantage is nullified. And now all of a sudden you're looking at often a fight where the two guys are locking up weird and colliding with each other and shit like that. And then on top of that, it's usually slow going in the first round. Like they're mm-hmm. like, uh, what the fuck is this? And that's kind of how it looked like at first. So sorry for that little side tour, but sometimes it oh. needs to be said. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, it, it looks like they're jockeying for position. And then Hamed starts going on the attack and starts kind of winging big punches at him, gets him on the ropes, steps out. And like Prince Nassim Hamed can only do, steps out with his head way up in the air.
1: like a Hands plane. all in different directions. And what does Kelly do? Catches him <laughs> with a beautiful hook. And at that point, too, you got to mention this. The HBO announcers were a little enamored by Hamed. At that, you know, and they were like, oh, you know, Kelly has been constantly can't catch him Yeah, The prince is ahead. Oh, you know, he's, he's catching Kelly, he's faster than him. Yeah, yeah, and down goes Ahmed out of nowhere because, like you said, Ahmed leans back in that one way he can do. It, and Kelly, because he's a smart professional, has jumped in with his own shot. Ahmed off balance gets dropped on it's his ass.
0: Not even a big shot either. It wasn't even like a, a massive shot, just a clean, compact just stepped with him, you know, like Hamed kind of steps back and leans back and Kelly just steps with him and boop puts him down. And it was, you could almost see a look on Hamed's face. Like, oh, okay. Like it's going to be a night like that.
1: And also too, like, ah, shit. Like that's the last thing he needed to do. Okay. I just got knocked in my fanny again. Like, you know, (laughs) which wasn't supposed to happen. And then I was around that he was controlling, even though like there wasn't a ton of action. Hamed had the general control of what was going on in that round. And when he was going in for a flurry, that's when Kelly caught him because Kelly punched with him as opposed to just holding, you know, weight and then trying to counter after that. So that's how he scored that knockdown.
0: Yeah, it it was it was just kind of a, a bonehead move. And then uh, somewhat interestingly, Hamed winds up getting getting up and again, in just signature Hamed style looks like he had a tremendous chin. He'd get knocked down and off balance and all sorts of shit. But like very rarely did you see him hurt. You know, like, and he gets up, he's fine. And he's walking Kelly down for the most part for the rest of the round. But still, you know, you got to give that round to Kelly. You know, he caught Ahmed hard and it was a, an explosive round because of that.
1: And it was one of those fights after that, that you just realized, okay, we're going to, you know, we're in for something special tonight. Or we hope so, because that's going to embolden Kelly, you know, a, a dude like him. How he fights, and if he scores a knockdown, that's going to get him hyped and it's going to make him, you know, fight a little bit more excited. And you got to think of his corner too. He had a trainer by the name of Phil Borgia, who um, made for a lot of dramatic uh, moments in the corner because if Kelly's eyes were getting swollen and all that, Borgia was from the type of school of like, you know, a Teddy Atlas or Emmanuel Stewart, for example, where he wasn't going to be, like, very, you know, calm and mellow and try to, like, you know, relax with you and try to, like, guide you through this. No, he was going to yell at your ass to get you, like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> like, You know, Borgia was one of the OGs of it because Emmanuel Stewart, we didn't see him lose it. The first time I saw him lose his cool was with uh, Darnell Nicholson, which was actually around the same time of this. So, okay. And then um, Teddy Atlas, same thing. So I guess all three of them. Yeah, this was around the same time where trainers were starting to get more a little bit more exasperated in the corner like that. But Borgia was not the type of dude that was going to be like mellow, okay, you know, like um, like Andre Ward's trainer.
0: Yeah, yeah Virgil yeah. Hunter. Yeah, he was
1: going to be like a cat, you know, he's going to be like a whisperer over there and trying to like, you know although, what I mean?
0: Although, to Phil Borgia's credit, he wasn't getting up in George Foreman's face trying to fight him either. <laughs>
1: no, he wasn't. And Teddy. Shut thinking? up and get me a sandwich.
0: <laughs> what are you thinking?
1: He's lucky that wasn't 19... Imagine if that was 1974 George Foreman. They were, oh,
0: they were, they were talking about...
1: Ed right there, just picked him up like Zeus and Noel holds barred and just flung him across the room.
0: They just, were talking about Teddy had a bad chin back when he was a fighter at much lower weights so yeah. i mean like let's not put him in with george foreman now he's lucky <laughs> you know?
1: george was all like you know super religious at that point very much mellow and happy and like you know the guy that did commercials for pizza hut and donuts and burgers yeah but,
0: good gravy you almost the... lost your life that day teddy anyway back to the fight
1: well back to the thing but no you can you you know what i'm talking about like borger and kelly they both made for like an interesting dynamic because they would be yelling at each other in the corner you know like hyping each other up and all that so yes after that first round everything was all heightened like you know you're like oh shit this is gonna be a real fight kelly is like coming to fight tonight hamed just got clipped here we go
0: yeah it it absolutely no question and then going into the second round you know everybody's hype the crowd's getting into it and whatnot and then sure enough get they're getting back into an, an exchange and kelly clips hamed in a really strange way like a really weird angle to where hamed almost like turns around you know like and his gloves touches the canvas, but it's uh, Benji Estevez is a little bit late getting in there calling the knockdown. And so Hamed rises back up and Kelly goes whap and just slap, just gets him a, actually a really hard shot too, which in my opinion was just like a yet another testament to like Hamed had that chin, dude. He didn't even see that punch at all, like nothing at all. And it was like, Wrap! like his head totally snapped around and he was like, nothing happened and 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 kelly was a good puncher too it wasn't like he was just some fucking softy yeah absolutely so but yeah he that winds up getting called a knockdown and man at this point it's like yo what did hamed get into
1: i mean this was going to look like a disastrous debut on u.s soil and this is what everyone was hoping for oh yeah hamed's a fraud yada 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 but soon enough you know the power that again I'm not sure how many people Larry Merchant
0: thus far we haven't seen Nassim Ahmed's power two seconds later
1: boom boom (laughs) (laughs) and Kelly and that was a legit like the two knockdowns that Kelly scored like you said they're more flash variety the first round knockdown like it would look dramatic but it was still a flash knockdown because Ahmed was off balance second round like you said this one that Ahmed scored was not a flash knockdown this was like the power where you were like oh shit you know yeah like
0: stopped him in his tracks and sent him back like whoa Mm
1: -hmm.
0: like and you could even see on kelly's face like he he shook it off really well like he was like all right you got it you know that was good but you could see like he was like
1: like, okay yeah the power's legit oh damn
0: okay but i mean but it also kind of lively livened him up a little bit you know and and on top of that another thing that we both missed was that um Funnily enough, there was that moment right after that, because Kelly got in his lick after Hamed already was down, and then he hit him again. And then so Kelly gets knocked off balance and into the corner. Benji Estevez doesn't do anything, so Hamed comes over and goes, bap, and fucking hits that's him like, while he's helpless that. in the corner. You know, So it's like, almost it was like he was saying, like, yeah, got you, bro you know so i mean it was it was
1: obviously heating up. getting hyped about this now you know They're like oh my god this is getting crazy so round three starts and kelly ends up boxing one of the most disciplined rounds you could find like of his career you know what i mean it was almost like you saw a preview of how barrera would end up boxing Hamed in you know like five years later or whatever it was and it's like high in that round there was no knockdowns in that round you know, what I mean, it was knocked down for a second, but like yeah, that it was, was only it was round.
0: the only kind of calm round.
1: Well, uh, what was interesting about that round was that Hamed, that he looked awkward in that one. Kelly was so disciplined, and Kelly was not a dude who we like we both mentioned he could stay disciplined easily. Like you know, it didn't take him much for him to like lose his cool and just go into war. But after getting dropped, you can I don't know what it was, but like he decided okay, I'm going to do that. And as he said, disciplined, he outboxed Hamed that round. Hamed looked awkward. He looked off balance. He looked, I mean, as he always did, but like this one, especially because Kelly was being so disciplined. It he looked
0: like he was me. kind of out of his depth there for a moment. Yeah. Like it was like, oh, damn. And now because he's outboxing him? You
1: know, because Kelly decided, you know what? I'm not going to get caught with some shit this round. I'm just going to go. And he boxed beautifully that round. And Hamed looked befuddled. And I remember watching that too. I'm like, wow, man, I think Kelly might be able to pull this out. But Kelly being Kelly, he's just one of those guys. He can't just compose himself. If he had kept himself composed, who knows? I mean, always his chin kind of gave out his eyes, whatever it may have been, you know, later rounds and stuff. But that third round showed him what he could have done had he stood disciplined. But, of course, round four happens.
0: (laughs) And it was, dude, he he can't help himself. Kevin Kelly was, before anything, he was a fighter. You know, I mean, like, he was, he definitely was well-schooled. But he, he was a fighter. And even he said, you know, he's coming in to entertain, you know, it's his hometown, the flushing flash. You know, he was he was coming in to he was coming in to put on a show. And oh. so he thought that he, I guess, could press his advantage in round four and winds up getting clipped. And it's one of those knockdowns where like anytime you see a fighter and it's like they lose control of one of their limbs. Mm-hmm. Because Kelly goes down and it's like his arms like under him and it's like pinned yeah, under him. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Like anytime you see a fight, it's like they're hurt because then that means like something disconnected and you know, like like Montel Griffin gets knocked down by Roy Jones Jr. and he tries to get up and his ankles like spasming and he's like, bah, bah. it's like flipping around, you know, flipping around and shit. That type of Or if of you shit. like
1: see a guy like uh, Terry Norris or Larry Holmes, who um, Holmes ended up winning the fight, Norris didn't. When they got up from their knockdowns, homes against um uh not Tyrell. Not not Ernie Shavers, who's the guy that knocked the knocked the shit out of him? Ronaldo Snipes. Yeah. Holmes against Ronaldo Snipes or Simon Brown, Terry Norris. When they get knocked down, they get up and they run headfirst into the ring post. Yeah. <laughs> They're so discompopulated still. <laughs> Like, yeah, not even walk, they just walk. Oh, man, just...
0: Yeah, like, like, like Robinson Graziano, and Graziano's sitting there pedaling the bicycle on the ground <laughs> for like five seconds. <laughs> yeah. Like, something ain't working, you know, something is not connecting right, and, and that kind of shit. And so, Kevin Kelly gets knocked down, and it's like his arms under him, and he like rolls over, but you could tell like he's he's hurt, you know. Hey, and that, that was, was a
1: short punch, that wasn't like some long extended punch on my head, with. that was, was like one of those just douche, you know.
0: It's and it's extremely clear that Hamed, he does have that one punch power yeah. and it he has the fight changing power because he's in a in a, a bit of a rut. Like, yeah, he managed to knock Kevin Kelly down earlier, but at the same time, it's like, you know, he just had a an entire round where he had a tough time finding Kevin Kelly, and now he's not looking so good, and he needed that knockdown and got it. But and then in his zeal of going after Kevin Kelly gets clipped and he's so off balance that his glove touches the canvas. So it's like,
1: and that was one Though those, it was such a flash knockdown that Hamed clearly looks annoyed by it.
0: Yeah. He's when like, he's like
1: just okay. Okay. Yeah, Come on. You know? And then they go back and it was just, but I'll, I'll, I'll let, I'll tell you this too. Like um, Cedric, you know, when I worked for Cedric, it was only really he and I, and so, like he would tell, you know, when when he wasn't so busy, he would actually like stop and just randomly tell me stories sometimes. Or if I would like pick his brain enough, he would like sit there and want to talk, you know, do it. So he co-promoted the show because he was uh, he promoted Kevin Kelly, right? And he was telling me how he was sitting next to Lou ringside for the fight, and um, you know, they're they're obviously they're they're how
0: wild to- was Lou going?
1: Well, that's what I'm getting to. They were like close, like brothers, and everything <laughs> like that. But he said. Cedric told it me, he was like, when Hamed dropped Kelly for the first time, Lou jumped out of his chair. <laughs> like, going oh, crazy. And Cedric kind of looks at him like, what the fuck, Lou? Like, you're right. You're that's crazy. my guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's <laughs> <was> like really. <laughs>
0: That's fucking hilarious.
1: Like, you're just gonna do that in front of me, bro. Like, okay. (laughs)
0: Lou's fucking stomping around red faced.
1: What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, doing Lou Debella things. (laughs) Just all hype because Haven was, you know. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I thought that I always thought that was really funny. Because you know, Cedric was hype, and Cedric never got excited like that. I could just picture him when when Kelly probably dropped him, his eyes just probably got excited. In,
0: in one final and, and like that one final kind of hurrah for Kelly too, where, I mean, it wasn't a hard knockdown whatsoever. It was definitely a flash knockdown. Prince wasn't hurt. It was total balance. But
1: it was still, it just added, but it was it still, it still just like, what? Oh, oh.
0: Yeah, you I'm know? Okay. But then, you know, I think that that final knockdown from Ahmed, that left hand, you could the the issue is that if you watch the sequence more than once it's like you could see it he sees it hamed sees it like he's zeroing in on it and so kelly's kind of lurching forward and hamed's just sitting there he just has it just waiting for it bap one left hand and you could see kelly's legs just yeah that's it that's it and uh I get. I mean, I guess they could. He could have let it go because it was. He was really close to getting up at ten. But it's like, why? You know what I mean? It. It was clear. I think at that point that Hamid's powers just went way too much. But dude, what a fucking four
1: rounds! And considering what you just had on the undercard, dude, people were just. I mean, that would be the type of card that I wouldn't be able to go to bed that night. Like I would just be so buzzed if I was there watching that live. But that. That made the hot man aura. Like that's what he needed. Even though he got dropped um three times in that fight, struggled, you know, went back and forth, that made his legend because people wanted to see him again. Like, you know, you can get knocked down, you can struggle, you can look like shit. But if you would legitimately knock out your opponent and kind of live up to the hype of having that power and everything like that, and just and the explosiveness making it such a wild brawl that and, you know, you have to be seen again. And that's what Hamad was. at. People were just like, oh, my God, I need to see this again. Everybody wanted to see it again. And it's crazy to think that, like, out of all, all four fighters that night, none of them really reached the heights of what they reached that night again. Because, like, Hamad still had a tr- – still l- look, out of all the guys, Hamad had the best career still, like, after that. Like, you know what I mean? He was in major, ma- major big fights after that. But he never really reached that magic that he still had. You know, think about it. After this fight – he fights Wilfredo Vasquez. Vasquez was past it, and Hamed, you know, kind of picked him apart and stopped him in an easy easy fight, right? And then that's when, like, the performances really started looking shitty and spotty for him after that. Because after that one, um, soon after, I don't I'm – not, I'm not even looking at his record, but I think it was, like, Wayne McCullough soon after. He goes the distance of that fight and doesn't yeah. look you know,
0: a lot of people uh, were kind of whining about that because, I mean, McCullough had a granite chin, but a lot but of people were a, like, you know, it's the end of the road for McCullough. So
1: what the hell, yeah. you know, and how was bigger than anything. And it was just a weird, you know, whatever. The Cesar Soto fight is one fight that no one ever needs to ever see again. Like that was just an ugly, ungainly everything. And then like he has really he has entertainment fights with Paul Engel and um, Augie Sanchez. But should he be struggling with guys like that? You know? No. He shouldn't be struggling with a guy like Paul Lingle who he should have blasted in two rounds. He shouldn't have gone, like, a fucking um, to hell and back with uh, Augie Sanchez for five rounds before he stopped him. You know, his only really impressive fight after that was, like, Vuyani Bungu, who we found out later on was kind of past it himself. But it's like, you know, the Hamed that we always believed, that we're like, oh, man, you know, he's gonna do X, Y, and Z. It just, it never really happened after that. And soon to find out, if you listen to like all the European, um, you know the the UK writers and everything who were very closely aligned with Hamed in his camp back in the day, they would have told you he peaked before the Robinson fight. He stopped giving a shit after that. Like everything was just kind of like on his pure skill and instinct and athleticism that he was kind of just yeah. going through the motions, you know.
0: And that was that's another thing that we didn't really mention was the fact that he had gone through several trainers, including Emmanuel Stewart. Right. Yeah. And over the course of after about to oh, yeah yeah, he yeah went after
1: Stewart. He went to um the the late trainer who passed away, who he, who he stood with most of the time, the Spanish guy. um He became Asselino Freitas' his trainer as well.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um No, he's a uh, Puerto Rican, Oscar Suarez. Yeah, right.
1: Oscar Suarez, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was that thing, too, that this uh, Suarez and Stewart were co-training him, and they were both, like, bickering because they were trying to...
0: Yeah, it was... You
1: can never be a co-trainer for a guy when you're trying to, like, fight, you know what I mean? And
0: especially not a guy like that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's already the personality is too big. And then you're adding more and more and more. It's not, it doesn't, it never, it never works well. And yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You know, none of those fighters ever really, well, specifically Kennedy McKinney. Kennedy McKinney uh, never really had a big win after that. Junior it's Jones.
1: Crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, you know, think, all right. Cause remembering, back then, I still have a specific uh, memory of what fights were supposed to happen after this card. There was a lot of things happening. You know, I mean, like, there was all the articles in the magazines, newspapers, everything. People were talking, you know, and this was... From
0: 122 to 135, HBO had a number of fighters, dude.
1: They wanted to mix and match these guys, all right. So, like, after this card happened, you know, I remember in, it was mentioned in magazines and again in newspapers, like, because we didn't have the, It wasn't the age of internet. There was no Dan Rayfield or all, all of these guys who were breaking news or trying to do whatever the fuck it is. You know, it was just, we're, we are reading on hearsay for this shit. And at one point, HBO was going to have a card that was going to be Nassim Hamed and, and against Kenny McKinney. And the undercard was going to be Arturo Gotti against Kevin Kelly. Because <laughs> you're almost thinking like in their mind they're thinking okay two action warriors let's match them up and then McKinney knocked out Junior Jones so match them up with Ahmed. Sure sounds good in theory but
0: yeah there's a lot of funky weight gotta, stuff going yeah, on in that and, and I don't then
1: know how point, you do that. Dude. And then at one point Ahmed was supposed to fight um Gotti and then Gotti ends up losing to Angel Man Freddy, so that fight falls apart. Kenny and McKinney subsequently never really builds on that big win over junior jones and in his next big fight fights Luisito espinoza who interestingly enough has probably been around longer than any of those guys yeah <laughs> somehow talk about
0: long in the tooth yeah
1: <laughs> but somehow just you know wasn't a- as worn out as the rest of them and it absolutely blows out mckinney just knocks his shit yeah
0: but between like him and jerry penulosa like dude you gotta watch out for those washed filipino fools <laughs> seriously, take you man. out
1: those guys yeah yes yeah. so like especially if they've been like warmed up and haven't been in a long war for a while <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> take your ass out bro
1: seriously and for real mckinney so like mckinney's career never re- reached those heights again how mad we just said like he, he obviously still had a lot of big-name fights, but where he was at the, at the Kevin Kelly height, it never quite got there again. And then it faltered until he finally lost to Barrera and yada, you know? And then with Junior Jones, um, same thing. Like, he never – you know, it was sad to watch because I always loved Junior Jones. And he was one of those guys you wanted to root for. But he still got a few big fights after that. Like, he fought Eric Morales, who came on the scene right after all this kind of happened. And same thing, he shot his load after you know first three rounds and ends up getting knocked out, and he just never really recovered after that. He had a couple of big fights, most notably against um, it was Paul Engle, who we just mentioned? And I think that was on the undercard of fucking uh, Lennox Lewis, Michael Grant, or something. But anyways, that was that was a good fight. That was a, that was a really fun fight. But Jones just you know he faltered and he never really reached the potential where he could have been at. And then Kevin Kelly. After the Hamed fight, same thing. He still had big fights. Somehow ended up getting paper a pay-per-view fight against Barrera, which is one of the worst pay-per-view main events in history. And got an HBO main event against Morales. But he just, you know, he never really reached those heights again either, so.
0: Yeah, Marco Antonio Barrera was a massive star, so they're trying to push that on the on the back of Barrera being a star, but it was like
1: but against guys, like, yeah, what that made no sense. It? Like, why would you put Barco Antonio Barrera, Kevin Kelly? Like, if you want to make that like a twenty dollar pay-per-view or some offshoot sin fine, whatever. But they put that on an HBO pay-per-view where they expect you to pay fifty dollars for that. Or Barrera Mazanki Pana. Like,
0: oh dude, they had here? I actually I believe it or not, I don't think I have it anymore because I'm pretty sure I gave it to somebody, but I had a Barrera Kelly shirt. For the longest time, so bro, they had shit printed for that. so I'm saying, yeah, they went well beyond putting on. And paper this is due. like when
1: Kevin Kelly was washed, like washed, washed <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, it's like a several years after this hamed fight, in which he was already starting to kind of like is he washed? So, I mean, dude, I will say Kevin Kelly though, and one thing I haven't heard from in a in a while, and I could be wrong. It might he maybe he's doing local shit in New York. But he did commentating for a number of a number of different guest commentating
1: spots. I always thought he was super fucking good. Yes, absolutely, man. Kelly could talk his ass off, and he's always been able to talk. And he's very, and he's a great analyst. Like he can break shit down, man. Some of those former fighters that you know, there's not all of them. You know, some just aren't made for that. But like, there's a few of them out there who are just really, really good analysts and can break down what's going on in the ring. And Kelly is probably one of the best of them. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, he was one of those guys that I think – well, I, I can't say he never made it to the big league because wasn't he the analyst for KO Nation? I, I he, think that he was out, for
0: – I don't know if he was permanently, but I know he was on
1: it. Charles, him and friend Charles were like, the, were like two of the originals. So, I mean, yeah, he deserved – like I would I would love to hear him back on commentary again, you know? And if you ever meet Kevin Kelly, he will talk your ass off in a good way. He's like one of the most personable – nice he seems like like a super
0: nice guy yeah
1: is and he's been in so many wars and he loves to talk about his career he's one of those guys that's not going to be like oh yeah yeah that was a good fight (laughs) no like he will sit there and you'd be like hey man talk to me about Derek gimp talk to me about hamed alejandro gonzalez anything he will sit there and talk to you for forever about it and like what a wonderful human kevin kelly is i can't say enough about the guy you know seriously man
0: i'm just i'm still in disbelief even after we've talked about it this 25 years bro
1: it's incredible incredible man we've been around a long time man
0: a <laughs> little too long but man hey dude uh it's like i like to thank you for doing the homework but like on this kind of thing it's like not much homework dude it's fun it's fun to dude, re-watch This is and it's
1: something like this is just my life this is something i was passionate about as a kid like reminiscing about this and Hopefully, getting everyone like bringing it back their memories and reminiscing about yeah. this shit too. Is...
0: Rewatch nineteen nineties fight. Somebody twist your arm, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Or see if I can do it. No, dude, uh, I do appreciate it though because reliving is always fun, and uh, you know, your enthusiasm just adds on to mine, and it builds, and it's great. It's a lot of fun, dude. Appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely, um, buddy. Thank you, everybody who listened in. We appreciate you. If you listen in on the podcast app, please subscribe and give us a rating or review, leave a comment, those kinds of things. Very much appreciated. If you watched on YouTube, hi, hello, thank you. And subscribe there too, as well. And uh, if you would leave a comment or reply, we'll try to get back to those. We appreciate those. On social media, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on both Facebook and Instagram. But it's on Twitter as well. At least as long as Twitter is around, and we're also individually on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Ditto as long as Twitter is around. So, Eris is on there as Punch Zone Eris. Me, I'm on there's Patrick M. Connor. So, say hello and talk soon, Eris. Have a
1: good one, y'all. Plus.